Welcome to the November 16th, 2021 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Editor-in-Chief of Annals, and I'm here to give you a quick look at what's new in the journal since our last podcast. The first article to highlight is a randomized controlled trial that found that a single flexible sigmoidoscopy screening at age 55 to 64 years is a safe and effective strategy that substantially reduces colorectal cancer incidence and mortality. The strong protective effect was maintained up to 15 years for incidence and 19 years for mortality. Trials of flexible sigmoidoscopy screening have shown a substantial reduction in colorectal cancer incidence and mortality after a median follow-up of about 10 years in intention to treat analyses. The current trial provides additional data about the duration of protection conferred by a single sigmoidoscopy screening and about differences of screening effect by age and sex offering useful insight to support evidence-based recommendations about screening intervals, as well as about alternative strategies aimed to achieve a larger protective effect. Researchers from Turin, Italy, randomly assigned 34,272 persons aged 55 to 64 years at six centers in Italy to receive either a once-only flexible sigmoidoscopy screening or usual care. Compared to the control group, colorectal cancer incidence and mortality was 19% lower at 15 years and 22% lower at 19 years. Consistent with previous estimates on the basis of the 11-year follow-up, more than 80% of averted deaths are attributable to the prevention of incident colorectal cancer via adenoma removal at screening. Delirium impacts up to 30% of older patients and up to 15% of hospitalized patients of any age and is associated with longer hospital stays, higher rates of mortality, poor functional recovery, cognitive decline, and incident dementia. Delirium is not often identified during routine hospital care, which has prompted many hospitals to implement delirium screening systems, few of which have been studied. Next is a cohort study that found that the use of an app-based delirium identification protocol was feasible and accurate for physicians, nurses, and certified nursing assistants to implement as part of routine daily workflow in the hospital setting. Use of the app compensated for both lack of knowledge and lack of time by providing standardized questions to complete the confusion assessment method diagnostic algorithm briefly and with high accuracy. Traditional teaching suggests that most respiratory viruses are spread through droplets. These are larger particles that are heavy enough that they will rapidly fall to the ground within one to two meters of an infected person. Public health agencies have traditionally advised healthcare workers to wear surgical masks to protect themselves from droplet organisms. The one exception has been for patients undergoing so-called aerosolized generating procedures, in which case higher levels of respiratory protection, such as N95 respirators, are recommended. In the next article, researchers from Harvard Medical School, Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare Institute, and the University of Maryland reviewed published studies looking at SARS-CoV-2 transmission and infection control policies. They found that the traditional model of how respiratory viruses are spread may be incorrect. Most studies now suggest that respiratory viruses are primarily transmitted by aerosols that can remain suspended in the air for long periods of time, can travel beyond two meters from the source patient, and can bypass surgical masks. People routinely generate aerosols whenever they exhale, particularly when speaking loudly, breathing heavily, or coughing. Most so-called aerosol-generating procedures, by contrast, do not meaningfully increase aerosol generation relative to talking and heavy breathing. These insights suggest that we need to re-examine recommended transmission prevention methods in healthcare settings. 
the authors suggest a uniform set of respiratory precautions for all respiratory pathogens and high-risk interactions rather than differentiating between different kinds of viruses and procedures. They also recommend the creation of graded risk-based approaches to prevent transmission in healthcare facilities that take into consideration the amount of disease in the community, patient factors, and care factors that better predict transmission risk. Prior to the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, few older adults used telemedicine services as part of their regular course of care. Despite the possible benefits of telemedicine care for older adults who are at a higher risk for serious illness and have more trouble attending in-person appointments, little is known about the characteristics of older adults who use video visits. Next is a brief research report that found that sociodemographic factors, including location, marital status, and level of education, significantly were associated with how often older adults use telemedicine services at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. The findings demonstrate how structural concerns such as the digital divide may impact older Americans' access to medical care. Researchers from the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai studied survey data from the National Health and Aging Trend Study, an annual survey of Medicare recipients to characterize telemedicine use, defined as communicating with one's usual healthcare provider using video visits during the COVID-19 pandemic. The study authors found that despite the use of video visits for older adults increasing fivefold during the pandemic, twice as many older adults attended in-person clinician visits at the beginning of the pandemic despite high risk for serious illness if infected with COVID-19. The authors also noted a trend of less telemedicine use among respondents who had less education, no spouse or partner, and lived in non-metropolitan areas. The authors suggest that successfully promoting telemedicine usage by older adults will require addressing the digital divide, improving the usability of telemedicine platforms, and providing community-based technical support. As the flu season begins in the Northern Hemisphere, this month's In the Clinic Review is on the prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of influenza. Go to the article on annals.org to refresh your knowledge and earn CME and MOC credit when you do. Next is an ideas and opinions commentary that discusses the potential benefits and harms of a COVID-19 vaccine boosters for all policy in the U.S. The authors discuss alternative pandemic control strategies that they think may provide more benefit than boosters for all. These include expanding promotion of initial vaccination, increasing access to rapid COVID-19 testing, and donating or reselling doses internationally to improve global vaccination rates. The next article describes a retrospective cohort study of an algorithm-based automated text messaging system for monitoring patients diagnosed with COVID-19 who did not require hospitalization at the time of diagnosis. Modeled after a system developed by a team at Penn Medicine to keep tabs on patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, the text messaging system called COVIDWatch used text messages to monitor symptoms and symptom severity in patients quarantined at home with COVID-19. Those with concerning conditions were escalated to a small team of healthcare providers to determine next steps for care, including hospitalization if needed. The researchers followed 3,488 patients who chose to enroll in COVID Watch and 4,377 who received usual care and compared outcomes of the two groups at 30 days. They found that three patients in the COVID Watch group died within 30 days of their enrollment compared to 12 in the control group. 
At 60 days after enrollment, five people with COVID watch died compared to 16 not using the system. They also found that more than one-third of the deaths in the usual care group occurred outside the hospital versus none among those in COVID watch. Patients in COVID watch also were more likely to present to the hospital, and they presented an average of two days earlier than those in usual care. According to the study authors, the benefits seen by COVID watch patients potentially could be explained by increased access to and use of telemedicine and more frequent and earlier trips to the hospital when symptoms worsened. However, it's important to note that this was not a randomized trial. The observed outcomes could be due to differences in the patients who did and did not choose to enroll in COVID watch. Antiretroviral therapy can effectively suppress viral replication in HIV-1, but a sterilizing cure during natural disease is currently considered very elusive. A sterilizing cure refers to the complete elimination of replication-competent proviruses and has only ever been documented to have been achieved by two patients, both of whom had leukemia and underwent allergenic hematopoietic stem cell transplants. A small subgroup of patients living with HIV, frequently called elite controllers, have undetectable virus via polymerase chain reaction assay, but reservoirs of replication-competent HIV-1 persist. This situation is known as a functional cure as opposed to a sterilizing cure. Next is a fascinating case report that describes a patient diagnosed with HIV-1 infection in 2013 who may have achieved a sterilization cure without stem cell transplantation. Genome intact and replication-competent HIV-1 were not detected over eight years of follow-up despite analysis of massive numbers of cells from blood and tissue. These observations raise the possibility that a sterilizing cure may be an extremely rare but possible outcome in HIV infection, even without stem cell transplantation. Researchers conducted a detailed investigation of an elite controller with undetectable virus after more than seven years without antiretroviral therapy. The investigators looked for viral particles in more than 1.5 billion cells from blood and tissue samples taken over a more than four-year period. At no point was replication-competent virus detected, suggesting a naturally occurring sterilization cure. According to the researchers, these findings raise hopes that a sterilizing cure can be induced in larger numbers of people living with HIV. This patient, who resides in Esperanza, Argentina, is being referred to as the Esperanza patient, an apt name since Esperanza means hope. The next article brings us back to influenza and suggests that clinicians are missing opportunities to vaccinate Medicare patients against influenza despite widespread availability of vaccines and no copayment for patients. Medicare beneficiaries, including seniors and adults with high-risk conditions, are among the populations who are most susceptible to severe influenza infections and complications. Despite the accessibility of the influenza vaccine, uptake among Medicare beneficiaries was only 50.5% during the 2018-2019 flu season. Researchers from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention studied 31.6 million U.S. adults continuously enrolled under Medicare Parts A and B during the 2018 to 2019 influenza season to describe seasonal flu vaccine uptake and identify factors associated with missed opportunities for vaccination. The researchers found that only about half of Medicare beneficiaries age 19 or older had received an influenza vaccine during the 2018 to 2019 flu season. Individuals with at least one high-risk condition accounted for 89.3% of those vaccinated but did not account for more than 60% of the high-risk cohort. 
Researchers also observed disparities in vaccination status based on race and ethnicity, with far more white beneficiaries being vaccinated compared with Black and Hispanic beneficiaries. The researchers noted many missed opportunities during which all beneficiaries, including those at highest risk, could have been vaccinated but missed by both primary care and specialty providers. Burnout and impaired wellness among resident physicians is a topic of considerable current concern. Next is a study of resident physicians that reveals that the observed increase in depressive symptoms that occurs during first year of residency actually decreased substantially over a 13-year period between 2007 and 2020. These findings suggest that recent changes made to the residency experience may be helping to reduce depressive symptoms in medical interns. Researchers from University of Michigan surveyed 16,965 participants from 645 residency programs to assess whether the increase in depressive symptoms during internship has shifted over the years. The researchers noted a 25% decrease in the development of depressive symptoms over time and identified four factors that were associated with decreasing depressive symptoms among residents. Decreased work hours, increased quality of faculty feedback, longer total sleep time, and increased mental health treatment. Most notably, authors found resident work hours decreased by seven to eight hours per week over time, and that interns in 2019-2020 were almost three times as likely to seek out mental health services than interns in 2007 to 2008. Despite overall improvement, more than one-third of residents still experienced depression during their first year of training. The authors suggest that additional focus from policymakers, residency programs, and individual physicians on the four factors identified in the study could result in further improvements in mental health among resident physicians. Research grants are a metric of academic advancement, and National Institutes of Health funding is highly coveted in the U.S. The K mechanism is a category of NIH grants for clinicians and research scientists who wish to become independent investigators. Specifically, the K08 and K23 awards are mentored awards for clinicians that provide support for supervised research and career development activities. Both require a minimum of 75% full-time effort and are intended for postdoctorate, residency, or early career-level clinicians who hold a clinical doctoral degree. Importantly, these programs enable inspiring physician scientists to achieve higher rates of subsequent NIH funding. In a commentary published on Annals.org on November 16th, two women physicians reflect on their experiences in applying for NIHK awards. They offer useful lessons for early career physicians interested in pursuing research careers. Clinical guidelines seek to standardize care to increase adoption of proven superior interventions and to reduce ineffective, unsafe, or wasteful practices. Unfortunately, studies of guidelines have reported that many guideline recommendations are based on low-quality, hypothesis-generating evidence rather than on high-quality, hypothesis-confirming evidence. The authors of another commentary published on November 16th on Annals.org question the validity of recommendations based on low-quality data, which they believe drive incorrect, potentially wasteful, and harmful care. Also new are the latest episodes of Annals Consult Guys and Annals on Call. The Consult Guys revisit what physicians can do to help prevent firearm injury among their patients, and Annals on Call features a discussion with the author of a recent study documenting an acute association of alcohol consumption and episodes of atrial fibrillation. 
Unfortunately, I end this podcast with some sad news. Annals of Internal Medicine recently learned of the death of Dr. Edward Youth. Dr. Youth served as editor of the journal from 1971 through 1990 and began his three decades of Annals work as assistant editor in 1960. I never had the privilege of working with Dr. Youth, but many that did speak fondly of him and extol his many contributions to the worlds of scholarly medical publishing. A tribute to Dr. Youth published in Annals at the time of his retirement chronicles these many contributions. And while I did not know Dr. Youth personally, I very much appreciate all that he did for Annals during his long tenure at the journal. Stay well, and I hope those who celebrate Thanksgiving are able to enjoy the upcoming holiday with family and friends, as was not possible for so many last year. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.